Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Berkeley Alumni's Pass the Mic. I'm Jaquel Illy. And I'm a very somber Patrick Pharma today. Somber? I am. Why are you somber? Jonah, can you cue the uh, royalty-free uh, sad trumpet music for me, please? Actually, hold on. Jonah. No, wait. Hold on. Jonah, play some uh, applause uh, for yourself. So uh, we got to give Jonah a shout out because Jonah is basically like a producer now because our other student employee, Tom, is at home this semester. So it's it's the Jaquel and Jonah and Patrick yes. show this semester. So Jonah, thank you for all you do. And back to the sad royalty free trumpet music, please. Jaquel, do you know why I'm sad? Why are you sad? I'm trying to figure out. It's because Bill Belichick is no longer the HC of NE. Wipes tear. That is pretty. <laughs> that's a really good reason to be somber. It's a sad day in New England for sure. It is a sad day. I'm old and Bill Belichick has been the head coach of the, the New England Patriots since I was a teenager. Wow. So there were lots of good times. And for those alumni that don't care anything about sports or the New England Patriots, you chose to go to school in Boston. So right. we're, we're been, dedicating a segment to Bill Belichick. So Yes, you've been in the city of championships, so you've definitely heard about it. And mm-hmm. um, so, like, do you feel like he should retire or should another team pick him up? I feel like it would be betrayal if he goes to another team. But a part of me feels like he wants to try to be Tom Brady, go to another team, win a championship, and then maybe retire. See, this is the thing that always bothered me, was that Tom Brady left after 19 seasons and Belichick left after 24 seasons. And I am a multiple of fives guy. And so we needed Tom to stay for one more year and we needed Bill to be able to handle the team long enough to stay for one more year. Then it would have been 20, 25. Belichick would have his most wins as a head coach. And then we'd be good. I agree. (laughs) But, you know, it is what it is, as Bill Belichick would say. He did his job. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of things on sale. My grandmother wants a nice sweatshirt. So I got you, Grandma. And (laughs) Yeah, so. All I can think of is a bunch of alumni staring at me blankly and, you know, throwing their shoulder and going, sports. Um, (laughs) Uh, also, I have another little, uh, little piece of media to play today. Whoa. What do we have here? Over the break, I had left the podcast recording equipment out because I was doing some, um, test voiceovers for some other stuff we have coming up this semester. I put it all in the computer and I found this. Hello, Boston. And today we will be talking about Berkeley College of Music. But the music for lies in your hands. We had Berkeley Awards, didn't we? So let's give a round of applause for them. If you have some exciting news about Berkeley, please tell us. Now remember, at Berkeley College of Music, your college and your creativity lies in your hands. Bye-bye now. Look at her. Okay, my little producer. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was my daughter, Sophia. Thank you, Sophia. That was nice. Yeah. So 
that's all I have. That's that was all the the stuff I came up with over the break. <laughs> well, first, <laughs> happy New Year, everybody, and welcome back. We are now in the second half of our first season. We just want to say thank you for supporting us. Thank you for reaching out and giving us your great feedback. Um, and we are now in the midst of recording for the second season. So we are excited for the upcoming interviews that we have for everyone to indulge in and learn from. And just stay tuned because more great things are coming. We know what's coming ahead, but Jaquel doesn't want you to know. It's... Of course, it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> but today, we uh, I think this is our first interview with an alum from the Boston Conservatory, right? Yes. Today, our interview is with Dr. Quentin Morris. And I had such a great time interviewing him. He was up here for the Alumni Achievement Awards last year in 2023. And he just talked a lot about um, like his background. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was how honest he was about he was first Firstly, he was nervous, right? Like just coming back to his old stomping grounds. And he felt so humbled to be able to receive this achievement award. And I also loved how he was talking about like the importance of the support from people in higher ed, especially from force a black male coming here all the way from the other side of the country. Immediately, you will tell that uh, Quentin and Jaquel hit it off. They became besties. You're gonna you're gonna hear a relationship evolve over time. Absolutely. Where like by the end of the interview, it sounded like you guys were like you know friends for years. Honestly, during the interview, we hugged at least two times. Like, <laughs> like he really might be my newest best friend. Like, super cool, great guy, great personality. And as you when you listen to it, he was gonna drop a lot of gems, a lot of things. He was really real. And I really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. He wasn't real in like a Cat Williams, like throwing people under the bus with Shannon Sharp. <laughs> but <laughs> he was very honest. I, it was really refreshing. Um, it, it's a great interview. So I'll stop talking about it so you can hear it. Enjoy our episode. What's up, everybody? We are back with another episode of Berkeley Alumni's Pass the Mic. We are going to pass the mic today to the dedicated, educated, and phenomenal Dr. Quentin Morris. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. How was the tour of Boston Conservatory? It was great. You know, being there, seeing the different spaces, just a flood of memories are coming back mm. to me. Yeah. I, I'm just very thankful and very blessed. Um, first, again, congratulations on this huge accomplishment of being recognized today. Um, earlier, you were just mentioning how you're feeling a little bit nervous. Do you want to talk a little bit more on that? Well, you know, it's, it's humbling to be recognized, A, by your peers, but then by your mentors, people who you really respect and and honored and admired and and in one sense kind of wanted to become and to now have them recognize you as not just a peer but kind of as an equal is I'm kind of tripping <laughs> you're like wow I'm actually here I'm here yes. you know mm -hmm. and when I was a student here, I, I came in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. and 
uh, came here to Boston in 02. Okay. I was a master's student at BOCO and my undergrad, I, w I went to another conservatory for undergrad mm -hmm. and it was traumatic. Wow. It was, it was traumatic. It was painful. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just an awful, awful experience. It wasn't welcoming? Not at all. I mean, and, and between my violin teacher and my conductor, the orchestra conductor, I was reminded almost daily that I didn't need to, that I shouldn't be there and that I was helping to pay the tuition of one of their more talented students. And this is what they told you? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. There's no respect. I mean, no respect. And so when I was an undergrad, um, my violin teacher told me very explicitly, don't apply to any schools in Boston, New York, or Chicago, because you'll never get in anywhere. And so when I came, I'll never forget it. It was the week of Valentine's Day in 02, I came and I played for Lin Chang, who I wound up studying with at the conservatory. And he taught at all the schools, NEC, MIT, Harvard, Boston Conservatory, and BU. And I auditioned for him at B, for BU and Boston Conservatory. And, um, and the first thing he said to me before I played a note was, he said, hey man, um, so who are you in the next 10, 20 years? Where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself? No one had ever asked me that before. No one had ever asked me what my musical ambitions or my dreams or my goals were. I knew what I wanted to do and what I wanted to become. But to have a superior in classical music ask me just completely took me aback. And I decided in that moment to kind of share with him, hey, I want to play Carnegie Hall one day. I, I want to be a college professor. I want to tour and, and, and play concerts. And he's like, that's really cool. And I was like, excuse me? Wow. You wasn't used to it. I wasn't used to doubting it. you. Completely doubting me. Wow. And then I, and I played my behind off. And, and we had a great lesson that, that, first, that first time I met him. And he gave me some pointers for the audition, which I did the next day. And like I said, I auditioned at Boston Conservatory and BU and, um, and NEC. And ultimately, he said, look, if you want a more kind of family environment, you want a more nurturing environment, come to Boston Conservatory. And so I was like, I'm there. Ooh. And I came. Yes. And... So I'm sharing this story with you to say that me coming to Boston Conservatory was, it felt like I had died and went to musical, music heaven wow. because I had these angels around me, these people who saw something in me that I didn't have the technique and I didn't have the matured, maturity to express, but it was there and they helped nurture and foster that during my two years. And and so coming back now is truly humbling because there are a lot of people who would have betted that I wouldn't have had the career, the success that I've had. Absolutely. Um, but I'm thankful to those people 
at the conservatory who gave me a chance. Absolutely. I think you're hinting on a very important thing of just having someone believe in you, right? Yeah. Just having that that um, village behind you that's going to push you to where you want to go. I think that's very important, especially in higher education, especially for a child of color, right? Yeah, and, a black a, man. A Let's black, just call it. Yes, a black man <laughs> in Boston, right? So Ooh, it's just like... That part. Right, right. So I totally see all of that, and I'm thankful that you was able to have that experience because a lot of people don't get to be blessed like that. Can you um, start at the beginning of your of your journey? Like, where are you from? I hear you saying, like, you came to Boston, like, but where you come from? I'm from Seattle. Seattle, oh wow. And so I'm back on... in Seattle. So this yes. that's home, mm-hmm. and I've been back home since I graduated from school. Wow, so you really traveled, like, across the country. Yeah, so my, my story is really interesting. I, um, first went to, when I graduated from high school, I had always aspired to be an attorney. Um, And that was because I just didn't think that there were any options for me as a professional musician. I didn't didn't know that one could, as a black person, could become a professional musician as a classical player. Um, So I went to uh, Xavier University in New Orleans. Yes, I'm about to get on that. Shout out to the HBCU. Because I'm definitely from one. I went to Albany State University. And Albany Church, you know, the unsinkable. Just wanted to put that. I played there. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. Okay. So I went there and I did three years there for pre-law. I had a violin teacher there, black woman who played in the Louisiana Philharmonic. She was phenomenal. And she said, you know, if you practice just a little bit more, you know, you could, you might be able to go pro. You, you're pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? And so she said, you should go to a music festival. And if you feel, at the end of the festival, if you feel like you can't live without music, you need to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I went to this festival, fell in love with music, and I said, I got to do this. So it was my junior year of college, and I was like, I need to make the jump. And so at the end of my junior year, I left. And that's when I decided to go the music route. And so I auditioned. I got into uh, North Carolina School of the Arts, went there for undergrad. So I spent another three years of undergrad, starting completely over, worked my butt off, and then came here to Boston, did my master's degree, then went to Texas, University of Texas, Austin, did a doctorate in violin, and then got the job at Seattle University, right. where I'm at now. Yeah. Wow, that is a journey. Um, you've been <laughs> a journey. Like you, you've been studying hard. You yeah. know, you're well acquainted with all these different areas of the United States. But why did you fall in love with the violin specifically? What about the violin kind of drew to you? You know, it's the violin is such a beautiful instrument, and it it reminds me of. Um, the human female voice, you know, it, it, it has this song quality and I've always been attracted to female singers. And so I, I, when I play the instrument, I think a lot of times of, you know, what a woman's voice, if they were singing the violin part, what would it sound like? And that was actually what the violin was created for was to imitate the human voice. And so um, Dropping gems, boom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in case you didn't know that one, yeah, I did. Yeah, and so that 
for me is uh, what originally attracted me to it. Is I, I love the beauty, I love the class of playing the violin. It's a classy instrument. It's, it, it, it's an instrument that can um, move people and um, it can be romantic, it can be sad, it can be loving, it can be heartfelt, it can be playful, it can be all of those things. And, um, and that's what, a, what I love about the instrument. That's amazing. Um, so after you have taken all of this time studying violin and music, why do you feel like music is important? Well, music is a part of our DNA as humans. There's not one person who's on this planet who does not listen to music in Absolutely. some capacity. Now, the genre, of course, is completely subjective, but as a human, we all listen to music. I mean, even animals, you know, um, are attracted to sound. They're attracted to the sound of instruments, the sound of other people's voices, or even sounds of other animals. They, they, we, we are all innately um, attracted to that, and it's a part of who we are as humans. And so why is music important? It's important in order for us to be able to function. It is as important as drinking water or eating uh, food or, or breathing air. We, we, we have to have music and we can't function without it. Yes, I agree. And I also feel like music aids us in being able to express ourselves, right? If we're sad, we're, like you said, the violin sometimes could be sad or if it, de it depends on the emotions we're going through. Sometimes it can help us get through things wherever we're going through. And like you said, there's so many genres and it kind of, I guess it depends on who the artist is, who you kind of relate to. It's just, uh, it's worldwide and it just invokes different emotions. That's right, that's Absolutely. right. And, and, and music, even for those who don't support the, the field of music, they are um, inadvertently still supporting it by listening to it. So you mentioned that you're a teacher right now at Seattle mm -hmm. University. Mm -hmm. um, not only are you a teacher there, but you teach students in many different ways and different aspects of your life. And I have seen that your teaching philosophy mentions how you cultivate a spirit of confidence and innovation into your students. And so I wanted to know, like, how do you do this and why do you think it's important to have these skills? Well, I think what I do with students is I try to see myself in every student that I teach in some capacity because um, I feel like in one sense I'm a cat. I've lived all these different lives, right? And and so it's <laughs> a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, like I, I've you know right. I, I had my time when I was partying. I had my time when I was not disciplined. I had my time when I was maybe too disciplined, too rigid. I had times when I felt unmotivated, and and I think. Understanding the student experience is so important, and I think as teachers, um, it's our responsibility to empathize with what they're going through, and and that's, you know, for for young kids or or young adults who are students and they're trying to navigate their ways through, you know whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish, my job is to not be their compass, but to actually just help them make, you know, wise choices on whatever they decide they want to do. Um, that's how I try to approach every student that I work with. In my own experience as a teacher, I've been doing this for a very long time now, that 
the more that I can connect with them as a person, um, the more they feel like they're of value and that they can trust me and that I'm going to believe in them and, and help them in every way I can. And that's certainly what I have tried to do. It's what teachers have done with me, and especially at Boston Conservatory. There are so many who invested in me um, that that's that's ultimately what I try to do. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you're dropping some great points right there because we was just talking about how that village is so important to you. So as a student, you was able to experience that, and you kind of want to be able to give that and push it forward to the students that you kind of cultivate. Yeah, because as I kind of mentioned earlier, there are a lot of people who would have bet big bucks that I wouldn't have made it. Mm. But the thing that I have, and I still have this. This is one of my competitive advantages. Mm. I will outwork you. You're a hard worker. Yeah, but I'm not just a hard worker. I'm a strategic worker. So, for instance, yes, please. one crappy gig will lead to another crappy gig, will lead to the person that who has the context for me to get to X, Y, and Z in the next three years. When I was in my 20s, that's what I was thinking about. I need to play this crappy gig because that's going to lead to another one. But eventually, I'm going to meet the person that I need to meet. So I need to be ready. Mm. I need to be ready. So what do I need to learn so that when that moment hits, because it's going to hit, I'm ready. I believe that our universe is a pendulum and it swings both ways. And whichever way that pendulum swings, when it swings towards you, you're either getting knocked the hell out or you jumping on that thing and you about to swing when it goes the other way. Absolutely. I'm that guy. When that pendulum swings my way, I'm jumping up and, and getting on that thing. Right. And it's going the other way. So basically you stay ready so you don't I have to get ready. That's right. So So that was me. So when I was at the conservatory... I was at the practice room at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning. Why? Because during that time, Irina Marisanu, who was the violin professor there, hair was always done. Makeup was always done. Always was like put together smart as hell and could play. And I'm like, she's already done up and ready and in the practice room, and she's a teacher at right. the Boston Conservatory at 7 a.m. Mm. So if she's doing that, I got to do that because I'm going to be where she's at one day. Mm. I'm going to be there. So I got to start doing this now. So what was I doing? And I lived in Hyde Park. So that meant I had to get up at like 5 o'clock in the morning, mm. right, get dressed, Drive my Geo Metro car with <laughs> expired tabs because I couldn't afford it. Cops out here be crazy. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't afford it. Drive myself to the uh, commuter rail stop. Oh, wow. Take the commuter rail to Back Bay Station. Right here. Then walk because I didn't have enough money to buy the T pass to to take me to the convention center. Wow. So I would have to walk from Back Bay to the conservatory. Even in the snow. Even in the snow. Mm, that hustle, man. Yo, yo but Ooh. I was there because I was like, if she's there, 
I got to be there because mm-hmm. I'm trying to be where she's at. Absolutely. I, I'm not going to get there today or tomorrow, but eventually I'm going to get there. So that was my thing was I used to watch. So like when I was in school, the, the teachers who were known for being demanding and really rough, I took all the classes with them because I was like, they're demanding for a reason. They're really good. People are scared, intimidated. I need to find out who they are and how they work so I can become them. And they're going to help you get to where you They're going to get me, yep. So I'm just going to take whatever blows come my way. You know, if, if they're... I had this one teacher, oh my God, for a year at the conservatory who was always getting on people about grammar and how to write a paper. And she would go, she would put you on blast. And listen, deals get made through good communication via email or, and I'm a professor, so papers are everything. Absolutely. I credit her. I credit her. I was attracted to the, to the teachers that everybody was like, ugh, right. they too much. You I'm didn't like, shy away from the challenge. I think no, that says a lot about you. I ran to it. Right. I ran to it. So when everybody was running right, I was going left. Right. And so, because I was like, I know one day I'm going to make it and I got to be ready. And all these demanding people who are screaming and hollering and, and, and demanding all this stuff, I got to go to them because mm-hmm. they, they got something that everybody respects. Where do you think you get this t- determination from? Like it, like that drive, like that go-getter energy. I've always really been weird. that way. Mm-hmm. I bet on myself. You know, I think it's a combination of how I was brought up, you know, in the 80s, you know, gay black kid. I was teased and bullied. So I had to learn early how to strategize, how to make friends with people who didn't like me. I had to, you know, if I was sitting down at a table of men and who were homophobic and they were playing dominoes or spades, I got to be that spades partner that you want on your team because right. you know we about to set you. <laughs> And, and we, we right, about to win. we about to win. Absolutely. So I learned that at a really early age of how to adapt and mm. how to um, make friends with everyone and how to gain respect. You don't have to like me. You don't have to you know, agree with my life choices or whatever. But you gonna respect me, and and I'm gonna work, and I'm gonna earn your respect. And I so so I think that that's where it is. I think also my mom has had a huge influence on me. My mom taught me very early on to listen to that small, still voice on the inside. And it'll never misguide you. And I always listen to that. And so, and she would say, no matter what anyone says, even if I tell you something and you're like, that little voice is saying, do this or don't do that, don't listen to me. Listen to that voice. Wow. And I learned that as a child. And so each time that I have listened to that voice, which has been in some very vulnerable moments, like I told you, I basically started over with music, you know, when I only had one year to graduate, that little voice was like, you need to go now. Mm. I listened to it and I'm so thankful I did, you know. Right. Um, That's also just shows how disciplined you are. Yeah. Do you feel like that was also something that you have in, have been instilled in you since a younger uh, young boy? Yeah, and I mm-hmm. think it's been something that has been developed. I think it's been developed through my relationships with people. Um, you know, 
who you decide to be intimate with is probably one of the most life-changing experiences anyone like will ever like have. circle? Yeah, who Absolutely. I call my friends, people who I've dated. I, I, I don't date people who are lazy. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> I, I'm just not, like, you know, my partner um, is the director um, of a hospital in Seattle and also hey. the direct medical director of a hospital and also the medical director of um, the Seattle Sperm Bank. Oh, and wow. so, like, yeah. So, like, if I'm letting you in, like, we, we win in. We're going to compliment each we, other. That's right. And, we, and support each other. And so I think, you know, my, my inner circle is very, very small. Um, and, you know, and I think that whoever you bring into that circle as friends, you know, partners, um, people you date or marry, they, they, you have to be aligned in your values and in your outcomes. Absolutely. And hearing you talk about this kind of makes me remember what you were just saying about being strategic. You, That's right. You be strategic and all throughout every part of your life. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's right. And, and, and you know. That's and important, though. It's very important. And, and also just understanding, like, what is your life's mission and your life's work? Like, I feel like the pandemic for me was such a blessing mm. because I was like, it's go time. It's time to just light everybody on fire. Oh, wow. With yeah. this, you know, this thank you universe for giving me this opportunity. Mm. And so the two years I was at home, you know, I went back to school. I got a grad diploma from Harvard and business. Yes. I was like, it's time to really do this wow. and so I feel like I've really come into my own and I've really come into my purpose um, because I'm, I'm just I'm I'm going all the way in for it yeah I think that that is so interesting because you know the pandemic some people have good uh, you know experiences some people don't so it's good to hear that you use that opportunity to like kind of like further your education and yeah. like help you get to wherever wherever your next goal is or however that may look like <laughs> you know that's very important but I have two more questions as we are almost out of time sure. time is flying I you know, know we have a good time we just whoa I have so many questions but uh -huh. one of the things I wanted to know is um, you self-produce a short film music video based off of the life on uh-huh chevalier de saint George. i wanted to know why what about him inspires you you know what it was being at boston conservatory really yes that's where it started because Tell me more. okay so in the early 2000s in the 90s and early 2000s okay i have always loved the music of black composers okay mm -hmm. now in classical music you know, you learn your Beethoven, your Mozart, your Strauss, your Brahms, all that stuff, right? The the dead white guys, right? Absolutely. I was the guy that would show up to the audition playing some dead guys' music, and then I would say, and I have a composition that I have written, and I have a composition by a black composer. Nine out of ten times, you write, people would ask, you write? Yes, I compose. <laughs> oh, okay. So they, they tripping off of that. Then I have a piece by a black composer. Really? Who's that? They probably don't even know who it is. Huh? Didn't even know. Didn't even know. Mm. And then what I was generally met with was, well, 
if the music was good, everybody would play it, okay? That that racism's mess, okay? Again, trying to doubt you. Bingo. So Little did they know. Right. So when I went to Boston Conservatory, Lin Chang recorded the music of William Grant Still, who was the first African-American composer to have a symphonic work premiered by a major symphony orchestra. It was the Rochester Philharmonic and a opera premiered by a major opera company, which at that time was New York City Opera. Lin Chang, in one of my lessons, I'll never forget as long as I live, little Chinese man said, <laughs> he used to ask all the students, like if you came from a different country, hey, how many composers of your ethnic descent do you know? And he asked me, how many black composers do you know? And I was like, I know about William Grant Still, and I know about, uh, that's it. He's like, well, you need to learn about Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Oh, and I was like, he put me on. Okay. And he was like, you need to go to the library and look him up. So I looked him up, and my mind was completely blown. And, and that started it. So it started at the Boston Conservatory. I wound up playing for my master's recital. Um, Two pieces by black by black composers, and then when I went and did my doctorate, I did my whole dissertation on Chevalier de Saint Georges, right. right, and recorded his repertoire and all of that. Mm -hmm. The film was an opportunity. It's a short film. Was an opportunity for me to um, really tell his story as if he were living today. Right. Now, the reason why that film was so important if I'm being really honest, is I hadn't originally planned to do a film. Mm. I was just going to record his three sonatas, but I only had three days of recording time in a studio, and I ran out of time and couldn't get the sonatas finished. So, and I had two investors who had invested all this money in the recording project, so I was like, oh my God, I'm out of recording time. You know, because I had this really expensive violin on loan, and just... We weren't able to finish it. Yeah. So I was talking to my friend at that time um, who was living in France, and he was like, well, why don't you make like a documentary or a film about him? Mm. And and I was like, well, that'd be cool, but where would I do it? He's like, well, you should come here to France and do it. He's like, I know such and such and such and such, and I can get you in at the Louvre. And I was like, for real? Wow. He was like, yeah. So then he made some calls, and... Sure enough, four months later, I was flying to France and I was shooting my film at the Louvre Museum in Versailles Castle. Wow. Yeah. My face just so dropped. the music <laughs> that I had recorded served as the soundtrack wow. to the film. And I basically turned my treatise paper into a screen film. Well, first and of that's all, how it started. And then yeah. I did a world tour for two years with the film, with the performances. Yes. So I was what? Into that. <laughs> nah, but I was just saying, like, first of all, that just kind of highlights the importance of your circle. 
Because mm. hello, you had him in your circle already to yeah. call, and he didn't open up these opportunities. Okay, <laughs> we that were just talking randomly. That's yeah. what's crazy. I was like, what am I gonna do? How am I gonna tell my investors? And then I went back to my investors, and I was like, hey, by the way, we're going to the Louvre. I wasn't able to record, finish the album. I'll do it later, but I have this other opportunity. And they were like, the Louvre Museum? What? Then guess what would happen? That was back in 2015. Wow. 2018, who's at the Louvre Museum? Jay-Z and Beyonce. You a trendsetter? <laughs> I mean, she's a Virgo, I'm a Virgo, so maybe that's... Uh, I'm a Virgo. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Shout out to the Virgos. Okay, okay, September okay. 7th, right here. Why? I'm September 22nd. Hey. Just made the cut. But yeah. wow, look at that. That just made my heart warm. But that is amazing. Wow. Yeah. Last question. Uh-huh. As you have just uh, mentioned, you did a world tour for a breakthrough, and then you also have a nonprofit organization, Key to Change. You are a professor. Like, you have done so many great things. You have so many accolades underneath your belt, um, titles. But I wanted to know, like, would you consider yourself successful? And if not, like, what does success mean or look like to you? I am successful because I'm happy. Mm. Success is all about personal happiness. Mm, that's deep. Mm -hmm. And like perception, would you say? <sighs> the accolades, the awards are a reflection of my hard work, but my, my lifestyle, my family, my friends are a reflection of my happiness. Yeah, I would say that, you know, um, I'm in a position now where I can fly my mom to Boston to come and see me get the award and, yeah. you know, um, and I can do nice things for her. That makes me happy, you know. Um, so I use that to bring happiness to my, my family, mm. um, my friends, you know. Right. Um, but that, for me, the, the true success is the happiness. You know, um, I haven't always been happy, and I've had great moments, great concert moments. Carnegie Hall, wow. 2014, sold out my, for the third time, recital. Wow, not one, not two, but three. Three, Let them know. the third one. Miserable. Oh my goodness. Came back to my hotel room crying mm. alone. Wow. I was sad. I had no one to share it with. Mm. I just played my third sold out recital at the world's greatest theater. Mm. By industry standards, I was flying on top of the moon. Wow. And I was sad. I had no one to share that moment with. Mm. No one. Wow. You know, so much for opening up and being vulnerable. Yeah. You that. know, so success for me is a real happiness of sharing, you know, life's moments with people who you love and who you support, who support you and who care about you. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what's most important to me, you know, 
and I'm having a banner year. I'm having a great, I feel like it's my season, okay, you know? Claim and it. Yeah. Claim it. It's mine. It is. And, um, and I'm able to share these moments with people who I absolutely love and who honor me and support me and, and see me for me. It's always a blessing to see where you were and where you are right now. And mm -hmm. you just, you radiate happiness and mm -hmm. a smile and great Thank vibes. You. So we are very happy again to have you here and um, congratulations on everything. Um, is you. there anything that you want to say? Last thoughts? Uh, yeah. Where we can follow you on? Yeah, What's going you, on? you know, I would just say that for, I'll, I'll try to make this as quick as I can. Um, I was in Orlando a week ago, and I'm not going to put this person on blast, but, you know, social media is really big right now, right? Absolutely. And so there was this comedian that's on social media who has one million followers, okay? They get on Instagram, they tell their little jokes, and, and they are, for that minute or two, amazing. Right, they got a million followers. You would think that they are on top of the world. I went and saw this person. This person could not carry the show. They fell face first. It was that bad. It was bad, bad, bad. Now, their opening act, who has like 5,000 followers maybe, I don't know, killed it killed it like like i was crying uncontrollably <laughs> and that show. was it oh they didn't even steal they just took the moment oh, they, wow. they just did their thing mm -hmm. so much to where when the main act came out that person fell on their face so why am i sharing that with you i'm sharing that to say that we live in this very instant gratification you know one minute, two minutes on social media, three minutes, that is just, that is a timed activity, but it is not reality. Mm. And so if there were any advice that I would give to people who are listening, it would be not to live for one, two, or three minutes. Don't run the sprint run the marathon I know, that's right. and not just excuse me don't make it a marathon make it a triathlon mm, extra long be excellent not in just one area but triathlon is swimming biking running mm. make all three of those areas in your life whether it's your personal your spiritual and your professional all three really great, really centered. Mm. That's what I've done for myself. And that's what I would encourage for anyone listening. Don't try to just go for a minute or two or three. Make it a triathlon. Make it a, a, a journey where you are constantly evolving and changing. Um, and don't be... Um, consumed by the hype of social media because that's exactly what it is. It's hype. The real work is dirty. It's mm -hmm. frustrating. It's ugly. It's time-consuming. It always takes longer than you think. And um, it is full of rejection. Mm -hmm. But the rejection is just 
moving you and aligning you to where you're supposed to be mm. and what you're supposed to do. And, and so that's what I would say is don't give up and keep working and take all those crappy gigs because they lead to other gigs that will make you successful. Wow, that was amazing. That was just gem, 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 gem. So thank you so much, Dr. Clinton. Yeah, that wraps up for this episode. See y'all with the next one. Hey there, it's Luis and Danny. Hey everyone. Last year's Career Jam was incredible, featuring giants like Riot Games, Universal Studios, and the multi-talented Donald Glover. What do you think of those events? I had a blast. From music business to film scoring, it covered it all. Meeting the artists and industry pros who shaped our industry was amazing. Can't wait for the next one. You know, it's all in part thanks to our awesome community of donors, right? They make a lot of these opportunities happen for us. Check out berkeley.edu slash giving to support and keep initiatives like Career Jam going stronger every year. Until next time, everyone. All right, and that was the interview with Quentin Morris. But before we get into the debrief on that, we have breaking news. Gerard Mayo was just announced the head coach of the New England Patriots, which makes me feel a little better. <laughs> Again, I'm sorry, sports, I know. My dad and my uncle have been going, have had season tickets to the Patriots since, like, before I was born. Wow. So, like, I've been going to Patriots games forever until they got good, and then all of a sudden there were no more tickets for me. <laughs> But anyways, okay, so, well, you know, this has been an eventful podcast. We've, we've got breaking right. news. We're talking about different things. Yeah, Sophia talked to us. It's got a lot of good energy for the first episode yes, of the season. Yes, happy 2024. Great things on the way. <laughs> so, boss, what did you think of the interview? I think the thing that stood out to me the most was he said he came to Boco because it was a nurturing environment. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, I it's, it's very interesting in the arts there's space for competition and there's people that really like like that competition but then there's also artists within the same medium that are completely like averse to competition and i think that's me mm -hmm. but like when i was in film school i always thought it was like high school like the jocks were the camera guys and the the nerds were like the lighting cinematographer guys <laughs> and i i wonder about that dynamic in music because I kind of had a taste of that and I didn't like it. He's a person that, you know, likes to nurture his talent. And through all of the work that he does, you can see how he puts that nurturing back out into the yes. world. Yes. Yeah. And I think that was a really good point that you just brought up. I feel like the media world itself is super competitive as well. And sometimes it could be, you know, kind of daunting. But once you have like the right people in your corner to just encourage you to keep going and to like let you know and reassure you that what you have is special and different from others is definitely makes a big difference. So we can all see ourselves in Quentin Morris's story. So uh, that is, so we have another uh, Boko alum coming up this semester. Um, you know, we're already working. We've already have a couple interviews in the can for season two. So um, there's a, there's no cliffhanger <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the season. Nope. Uh, we have at least, uh, I think we have at least enough for another year. So, uh, but we have some special guests coming up this semester and all that. And I won't say too much because you know Jaquel doesn't want you to know. And to play us out, we have a song from the one and only Ro Rowan, 
who is a cello player from the college. Uh, by the way, uh, our Boko friends, send us uh, some of your performances so we can put uh, put you in the musical portion of the end of the program. Uh, so, Ro, I flew out to L.A. for the L.A. brunch, and my flight got delayed and delayed and delayed. So I went straight from the airport uh, from LAX to Ro's apartment. Oh, wow. We did a performance and interview. Uh, you can find that on our YouTube channel, Berkeley Alumni. We thought this was a very good pairing with Quentin. So here's Ro Rowan. Bye. Bye.